Blog Talk Radio. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Born to Talk Radio Show. I'm your host, Marsha Witeka. Conversations plus connections equals community. Those are my three C's. The heart of my show is what's your story? It's my belief we all have stories. Some are similar, others are uniquely different. Storytelling brings the passions of my guests to life through our conversations. So be prepared to be entertained, informed, and inspired. Welcome to today's show. Hello, everybody, and thank you for joining me today with my guest, Amy Peel. She is a retired nurse. She's an author. She's a wellness advocate, and i got to tell you, and much, much more. Welcome to the show, Amy. Well, thank you, Marcia. It's so nice to be here. I'm really excited to be part of it. Me too. You know, I tell people so often, it's it's like we're just sort of sitting at Starbucks, you know, and we're just having a conversation, and oh, by the way, no, we're recording it. But it is such an honor to have such amazing people that do amazing things. And I, and I know that that can be an overstated term, but it, but it's true when it comes to you. And I'm just I'm delighted to share your story today. And I thought we could start start by having you just tell us a little bit about your background so that we get to know more about you. Well, I would be happy to, but at first I invite everybody who listens to just maybe take a deep breath because it's one of the things I always like to do before I start something. So I'm just going to take a big, brief, deep breath with you and whoever else is listening right now. And then just kind of come come into the present moment. Yeah, that was a good one. You're getting an A plus for that one. Thank you, because my um, shoulders are not earrings, Amy. My shoulders are supposed (laughs) to be down where they belong. So go ahead, my friend. Tell us about yourself. <laughs> well, I'm a, I'm, I'm a Midwest Chicago girl, born and raised in Park Forest, Illinois, 60466, same house. Uh, and I uh, went to nursing school in Chicago, South Chicago, and then I became uh, an RN, licensed RN. And I started uh, my career as a transplant nurse in 1977 at the University of Chicago. So that was kind of the beginning of my career, uh, nursing career. I did work on some med surgeon surgical floors. I'm from a large family. There was six kids in my family, and my mother raised us by herself. Uh, my father left when we were young and no child support, so I was a private duty nurse back then. It was, uh, she made all the money to pay, keep a roof over our head and food on our table, and I'm forever grateful to her. We can talk about that more about her later. Um, but that's where I hail from, and a sense of humor was key to surviving in that family. <laughs> I think it's important anyway. So um, that's kind of a little bit of a springboard into kind of uh, my background. Of course, there's lots more we can cover. And then I'm also sure. uh, a, a certified uh, Chopra yoga teacher, and I also mm-hmm. got certified to teach laughter yoga. And we can also talk about that later. You and bet. If anyone is listen, yeah, if anyone's listening and has to hop off, if they want some free little short breath and stretches, they're on my website. Um, and uh, they can go ahead and help themselves. They're free because I feel everybody deserves a little stretch, a little breath, and a little chuckle. 
So my uh, website is uh, Amy S. Peel, A-M-Y, S is in Sam, P-E-E-L-E.com, Amy S. Peel.com. And I just put that out there at the beginning, and I know you're going to help to uh, remind folks, but I thought I'd throw that out there. Well, I'm glad you did. So I, I, my, I, my first curiosity question, a family of six, how many boys, how many girls? We got four boys, two girls. I mean, four girls, two boys. Hello. <laughs> yep, four. And I'm the, fifth, I'm the fifth of six kids. Okay, so you're there down. You have, so the sibling that's the youngest of you, is that a boy or a girl? It's my sister, Helen. She's the youngest, and she's 65. I'm 68. Okay. Wow, a big family indeed. And and it, it it's really interesting how our family life as you as you mentioned really shapes our lives. Um I, you know, it couldn't have been easy for your mom and clearly she instilled upon you and maybe the rest of your siblings as well the value of education. And so you're to be congratulated for for wanting to do that, Amy. And you're right, it is Amy Peel and but but you use the S in your name and that's important. So it's A M Y S P E E L E dot com. You have a fabulous website by the way. So Thank you. you sort of you do. And so let's let's sort of start I always feel like I'm going to break into a song like let's start at the very beginning, a very good place to start, but I'm not going to sing it because as much as I'd like to, I'm not going to. So let's ask, let me ask you this. How did you actually get into the organ transplantation field? Good question. Well, I was a staff nurse at University of Chicago, and the floor that I worked on, if anyone knows the hospital, was, was in Billings Hospital on I-4. I-4 was a transplant, uh, well, it wasn't just transplant, but it was an experimental surgical floor. So we did abdominal surgeries, a variety of them, Whipples and Billroth ones and twos. We did pancreatectomies. We did um, also kidney transplants. So now this is 1977, very different than from today. And I just got so enamored. And, of course, I'm working at an academic medical center, and they make rounds several times a day. And I was just so excited, and my brain was so happy because I was just brain candy working at UC. And um, so I got so curious about it. Enough that when there was a coordinator job that opened up, this, the, chair, the Dr. Stewart, who was head of it at that time, Frank Stewart, um, actually asked me to interview for the job, which I did. And I wasn't sure that I wanted the job because mm-hmm. it was tough back then. I was working 16-hour shifts on the floor because there was a shortage. And I kind of wanted to just work through a registry and, you know, name my own hours because it, it was even though I was a young whippersnapper. But I got the job. And that was it. That That's when it all took off, it, it, and it's been in my DNA since then. I got to do so many exciting things as part of the transplant team, some hard things. Um, my Part of my job was to speak with donor families, to ask them to consider organ donation, which is probably the most sacred time to be in, in anyone's space. I also got, to, on the other end, I got to call somebody and say, Hi, Sophie, it's Amy Peel. We've got a kidney for you. And just mm-hmm. having to get to place that call was such, it balanced out the sadness of the donor with the delight of the recipient. So that's kind of when I got the bug. And honestly, I, I still have the bug, even though I'm a retired transplant nurse. Well, what, what's interesting to me, uh, I'm in the process of renewing my driver's license. I presume 
that this isn't just a California thing, that wherever you live, you can decide and choose if you would like to be a donor. I mean, you can have that on your driver's license. Am I right about that? You are, but more importantly now, because it's, you know, throughout the United States, regardless of whether you decide or not, your family will be asked. So our universal, you know, request is that regardless of whether you want to or not, share it with your family members so they know, because the last thing they want to do, God forbid something terrible happens, is to guess what you want. So, yes, you can have your driver's license signed. You can sign up at the National Registry. All those things indicate that you want to be a donor, and if they, you know, God forbid somebody was in that position and, and the family said, nope, I don't, I don't want her to be or him to be a donor, we could in the transplant world say, well, this, we have a signed first-person document that they signed up to be a donor. This was their wish. So right. uh, just know that this, your audience needs to know that their family will be asked. So the best thing to do is just have a discussion. I agree, and frankly, depending upon where you are in your life, in my particular case, you know, I'm we're the similar age. Um, you know, I, you have to have a trust. You have to protect your assets. And part of that discussion with my attorney was to put that in writing, so that you do take that. Oh my God, what should what what would Mom want? What would Dad want? What would my sister want? This is this is a this is an important discussion. And once it's been decided and discussed, you don't have to think about it anymore. It's like pulling your wisdom teeth. Once they're out, they're out. So I, I'm, I totally agree with you. Now, in part of the, in part of the um, transplantation, were, you, were there ever heart transplants as well that you did, or was, was that not part of what you did? No, my, it, it was there. What I did was as, as transplant evolved and success rates were better in the country, kidneys started then livers and I guess the first heart I think was in South Africa and then at Stanford I would talk to a donor family and see what if anything they would like to donate if they decided they'd like to donate all their loved ones organs I would orchestrate all the events that would culminate in the organ donation which would mean I would call the liver team I would call the heart team I would be in the OR as each team both arrived organized it sequenced it and all of those little details that culminate in a very healthy organ then being transported and then transplanted into a recipient. And that's a lot of logistical coordination and important every, every minute, every second counts, because as soon as you take, you know, an organ out of somebody, let's say the liver or the heart, know that the recipient team is on the other end in an OR getting ready, already probably has the recipient prepped, but until the team who's recovering it does a visual Yes, this is healthy. And they've done lots of tests and all kinds of things beforehand. That's when they know then they can take the patient, put them to sleep, and start getting ready to take out the Mm -hmm. diseased organ so that when that recovered organ comes to the OR, there's not a lot left to do but take out the diseased organ and put in the new healthy organ. So it's a really sophisticated, multidimensional domino effect of all the things that need to be perfect to make it happen. Are you still um, involved with the organ transplantation today? Well, I am in an interesting way. I retired from the, one of the biggest and most successful transplant programs in the country, University of California, San Francisco, in 2014. And it, we did about 600 solid organs a year, so kidneys, livers, hearts, lungs, pancreas, islet cells, 
and amazing teams, amazing outcomes. So I retired, and then I decided I was going to write a murder mystery. I actually decided mm-hmm. a while before I retired because there were some people I really didn't like at work. So I retired and decided I would kill them in my fictional murder mysteries and use their organs <laughs> for transplant. Nice. Why would I waste? You know, why would I waste the kill? So I've written a series of medical murder mysteries, and the feedback that I've gotten, because some of the colleagues that I've worked with have given me really lovely um, blurbs, uh, is that, see, people feel when they read them, they get a peek behind the curtain, the real world of transplantation, because I, I lived it so I can depict parts of it in an accurate way. And while it's fictional, I also have fun with my two main characters. I sprinkle a little humor in there. So transplant is in my DNA, whether I like it or not, and I'm grateful for it. And uh, it's just hard for me not to mention it in the mystery series. You know, if I heard you correctly, the the organs that you talked about were very familiar to me. Did I hear you say eyelid transplant? No, eyelid cells. Eyelid Cells are part oh, of the pancreas I'm... to produce insulin. That's oh. okay. I could see how you might hear that. And um, who knows if they're doing them? They probably are. Someday. No, no. But what's um, an islet cell? An islet cell is the part of the cell that is in your pancreas that produces the insulin, so that you then can, oh. when you eat something or whatever, that's that kind of that machine. So what they did or what we did is they would get pancreas donors and they could distill down the islet cells and, and then inject those in type 1 diabetics to help them um, decrease or minimize or, or eliminate the need for insulin um, over the years. And this is still ongoing research, but there's several, well, there's more than several programs doing islet. It's I-S-L-E-T, islet cells, the S is silent. Oh. So, yeah, it's interesting. pretty cool, actually. Yeah. When, when did you um, begin your road to becoming an author? It sounds like maybe it was always churning around there in the back, but how, when did you actually begin to to, to start writing? Well, I, th- I think, uh, well, goodness, a long, long, long time ago, I was doing The Artist's Way by Julia Cameron with a couple friends of mine, Linda Davis and Linda Goodrich. And one of the prompts, if anyone's familiar with this book, which is a fabulous book, workbook, it keeps asking you to list really fast 10 things that you think you want to do. It's top of mind, no, no filter. Well, writing kept coming up, and I'm thinking, I'm not a writer. I can't. You know, I'm a, I was a medical person who wrote. signed mm-hmm. up for a community college class on creative writing at the College of Marin, oh, I could, maybe 30, 25 years ago. And uh-huh. I started to go to these classes. And thank God I had a wonderful instructor, Guy Biederman, who was gracious and kind and would always say, I, you know, what did you like about Amy's story or what did you like about Marcia's story? And it was just, I always felt leaving there felt like, oh, I want to write more short stories. These were not long, long, you know, books or anything. Mm-hmm. So that the community college connection was just pivotal to having the, the place and then the, the grace of an amazing, fabulous, compassionate instructor that got me on the road to writing. So you were doing this sort of simultaneously because you're still working these 16-hour days. Was this sort of your balance in life? 
It was, I started doing it when I moved to um, the Bay Area because I, I lived in Chicago for 31 years. I was recruited out here. Oh. and I thought, oh. I'll just come out here to San Francisco to work a couple years and then go back with my family, my friends, my nursing school pals. They were all back there. My best friend Janet lives there. So I thought, I'll just come out to San Francisco. I'll work. And then, and I was a single gal at the time. I'll come back home. Well, that, you know, as you know, you make your plans and the universe laughs. I met my husband. I came out. I came out in August, and then I um, met my husband. But a funny little thing, and I know we might get to it later, but it kind of, kind of, you know, feels right in this conversation. When I worked in Chicago in transplant, I kind of painted the picture. It's not a light profession. I decided I need to get some comic relief at night, so I took put myself in a uh, improv class at Second City called Players Workshop. And at night, I would go to if I wasn't on call, I would go to class. And it was just using your imagination. So that helped me balance the intensity of my work life with creating some humor. And right before San Francisco, I graduated with my class on stage at Second City. We got to do a show, which was very fun and exciting and scary. And then I came Uh out here. So that kind of was a, a preliminary tool in my toolbox to have levity at the appropriate time in the world that I was in in terms of my career. That that makes sense, and 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 like you said, as we talk more and more about you, and we understand that balance, that term itself, has so many different definitions depending upon who you're speaking to. You know, if you're talking to a tightrope walker as opposed to somebody that's in the meditation work, or just you're you're in all of these work activities and how do you balance all of those things. It's, it's a very it's a very key word for me, I know. So let's talk about that first book that I think you sort of alluded to. Um, it's it was the name of your first book is a memoir and it's called Aunt Mary's Guide. So tell us about that book. So that actually came out of my class at College of Marin the teacher gave us uh, a word, a prompt, and the prompt was ashtray. And then we write. You just whatever comes to your mind, there's no wrong or right answer. Well, what came to my mind, because my family, uh, we would go down to uh, Lake Wawasee. Um, it's in Indiana. Uh, every summer for a couple weeks, we, weren't, we would, didn't have vacation money, but we did get to go to the lake at my grandma's house and my great aunt. And um, so I wrote this story about these ashtrays because back then, you're in the 50s, 40s and 50s. I wasn't born in the 40s, but 50s. And people smoked. And my Aunt Mary, great Aunt Mary, as many other people, had these huge ashtrays. They looked like, Mm -hmm. you know, ceramic. And you wouldn't even have to bend over if you were at the table because it was so big. And everybody (laughs) had their, you know, they smoked palm oils or camel or whatever, whatever back then everybody was, many were smoking. So I wrote this story about Aunt Mary's garage. My great Aunt Mary had a house and a garage. She didn't like people in her home. So she renovated her garage with a bathroom and a kitchen and tables and couches and a fabulous uh, map of the lake. So when people came to visit, they would tell what they caught that day and they could show you on the map if you wanted to go the next day where to grab that bluegill or that, you know, sunfish or whatever. And she also, um, if you were a good friend of hers, Marcia, she would note what you smoked and what you drank. 
because she was quite a good host and so a hostess. So let's say you liked, you know, Jack Daniels or whatever. I'm not and saying Carrington's cigarettes because that's okay, what I smoked. And, and so whatever your cigarettes were, her point was that everyone was enjoying each other's company. You wouldn't need to leave to buy a pack of cigarettes or, you know, something that you were mm-hmm. drinking, whatever it might be. And she even had one of those old uh, soda machines where the top was, uh, you had to pull up the top and it had silver lined, like, uh, little aisles, if you will, in it. And you'd have to pull your pop uh, out and then up, out, like the RC Cola, Orange Crush, all those kinds of things. So that was her garage. And also, which you should note, and I don't think anyone's going to faint because they're listening to this, Aunt Mary had a brothel during the Depression, apparently. Oh! And wow. that's right. And yeah. And so um, she sold it, obviously, before any of us came to, t- you know, we're in wherever and bought property in Indiana and Florida. And so my first story after I, you know, my teacher encouraged me to write about her and my summers at Lake Wallacey was the second story was about, you know, how does a little kid know what a brothel is? And I, I talked about <laughs> looking it up in the dictionary. But the first story was that my oldest brother sold me for $5 when I was 12 days old. This is the truth because he felt there were too many children because I, you know, I was the fifth of six and he was the firstborn. And, you know, they all think the firstborn is, you know, the coming of the Lord. And um, (laughs) anyway, so he just took me to the next door neighbor and knocked on the door and said, you know, we have too many kids. Would you like to buy Amy? She just got here. And, of course, they all played along back then. You know, it was no, nobody locked their doors. It was safe. We, you know, we ran the neighborhood. Everybody right. did play. So so my mother went to look for me, and here's a knock at the door, and there's Mrs. McGovern at the door saying, uh, excuse me, Helen, I have something of yours. And, you know, they got a big chuckle <laughs> out of it, and then my, my brother got a little bit of, you know, discipline on that one. But that's, yes. how my, that's pretty much how my life started. Um, okay, and, and as I, I've aged over the years, I've become more and more grateful about um, my upbringing. And mm-hmm. I've also recently, I don't even know if I told you this one when we spoke last, there is some interest in making Aunt Mary's Guide into a potential movie from <gasps> both an investor perspective and in several folks uh, who have about 90 years cumulative experience in the movie industry are, are um, working with me to write a preliminary screenplay. So there's more story behind it, but I self-pubbed it. My mother went on my book tour with me, and um, it was a gift. It was really, uh, it was wonderful, and I'm still very proud of this. Oh, I can see why. And how exciting, how exciting that this may be a possibility for you. And, you know, I just have to, I, I know we've got lots to talk about, but my husband was from Detroit, so I understand that part of the country. And I know you know this because you are on the on the West Coast now. But you can always tell if somebody refers to a Coke or a 7-Up or whatever as pop, they did not grow up on the West Coast, that we call it, we call it soda or we call it a soft drink. But I know that pop was absolutely the term that was used when you went to buy red pop or gray pop or RC. It was always pop. I just I, I loved it when I heard you say that. It made my heart warm. So thank you for using that term. Okay, let's talk about um, 
your your two um, really well received, critically acclaimed um, medical mysteries. I know that Match just recently came out, and and Cut was your first one. So let's let's talk about those. What are those all about? Well, the first one is Cut, and it was came out in uh, 2016, and it is a medical mystery. And the kind of question it runs from is. You know, can you wire your way to the top of a liver transplant list? Now, that's not what I was going to go with, but when I started telling people I was writing a mystery and transplant, people who weren't in the industry would say, you know, bring me aside and whisper in my ear and say, well, can you really buy your way to the top of a wait list? Huh. I would just look at him like, well, no, but there was so much interest that I just took my cues from, you know, the public because when you're in an industry like you know, you never mm-hmm. know, you know, you, you live in that world and it's, it's not the same world that all of the other people who aren't in it. Is. So that was the first book and it was fun. And I, my two main characters are Sarah Golden and, uh, and uh, Jackie Larson. And I fashioned them off two characters from one of my favorite movies in the world, The Heat with Melissa McCarthy and Sandra Bullock. That's who I in my head imagine these two main characters would be. They're both uh-huh. nurses, best friends, live in the Bay Area. Uh, Sarah Golden's a head, you know, nurse at a uh, manager at a big global transplant program, and Jackie Larson, her best friend, is married, and her wife is the assistant medical examiner, and they have a little son named Wyatt. So those are the two characters that are um, taking everybody on quite the ride, pretty funny uh, characters. And um, so I wrote Cut, and I'm very grateful I had it's been uh, it published through She Writes Press, which is an amazing press, and I did very well and did a book tour and, you know, all those wonderful things. And then the second book, Match, M-A-T-C-H, came out during the pandemic last year. Mm-hmm. And that um, that was interesting to launch a book during the pandemic uh, because it's, you don't get to see people's faces when you're reading, doing a reading and a presentation. So I um, match is about uh, kidney transplants, paired exchange, which are kidneys, opioid crisis, and um, it's uh, kind of t- I tie those things together in politics into the the match uh, match that has been I'm grateful to say winning some wonderful awards and just got the gold. Uh, Ben Franklin Award for Cover Design, which I just heard about, and just won another award last week, so I'm very, very grateful for that. Um, And, again, the two gals take you on a ride, and I made up most of the characters. I even had characters I wasn't going to name because, like, (laughs) I didn't think they would be in more than a chapter, but they won't go away. If anyone writes anything, they know that. So I have Officer uh, Handsome, and I have um, uh, Biker Bob. Uh, who uh, are in all the books because they they came to be such fun characters. So that's, those are the first two in the series, and I'm just finishing edits on the third book, which is called Hold, H-O-L-D. That comes out this October. That is about the holy grail of transplant. And the holy grail of transplant is what if, and if you're a writer or anyone wants to write, you get the what if. Like, what if this happened? Or what if that? What if we didn't have to give any anti-rejection drugs to transplant patients? What if they just took one pill and then they never had to spend money or be on these other drugs to have horrible side effects for some? So I went ahead with that assumption just for fun. And it's not 
reality today, but I do talk about it, and it and it's it's in essence, could you hold on to a transplant if you didn't need to take drugs, and wouldn't that be grand? So in the third mm-hmm. book, I have uh, the, the the bad guys, if you will, are venture capitalists, or they call them vulture capitalists in some areas, and big pharma. So that embedded with my two friends who are uh, finally getting to go on a vacation to Cuba because they've been trying to go since book one, and I think I just got them there. Um, it's taken a while. But um, anyway, uh, that that's the third book, and I'm excited about that too. I'm uh, going to be doing a lot of uh, specific editing on that book and excited that will be coming out in October. That's neat. I, I'm looking at your website, which I think is really a sensational website. And um, when I'm looking at the picture of Aunt Mary's guide, I'm presuming that I am actually looking at a family picture, am I not? You are. Yes, you are. Yep, they're, they're all six of you are. I see that now. Um, but I'm, I'm looking one, also. I'm in the, I'm in the bottom, bottom row in the red. Left. Oh, you don't know if you can see it. Yeah, you got it. Yep. Yeah, yep, that's what I figured. Um, I'm looking at your other book covers, which are, are very decisive. They're black with red writing, and I can see where cut and there's sort of a, an, a, an instrument that you would cut with. But you mentioned just a moment ago that Match won an award for cover design, and I wanted to ask you about that because I'm looking at that I honestly don't know what that is a picture of. Could you tell me what that's a picture of? Well, one, that's really what you want someone to do, to look at it and go, what's that? What is that? Like, what is that? So they'll pick it up, and they'll, then they'll turn around, and they'll look at some reviews I've gotten from a variety of people. And yeah. it is a splash of milk, okay? That's all I'm going to tell oh. you. I'm not going to tell you anything. Don't tell any more. Designer, now, I'm not telling you anything. I'm going to tell you is that as a writer for this press, you have to write this long, 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 long book cover memo. It's definitely not a memo. And tell them every single thing that happens and every, you have to give them the spoilers, the whole thing. And from that, the cover design, Julie Metz, who does amazing covers for She Writes Press, um, comes up with a picture one. And she first sent this. I'm like, really? And then... <laughs> Over time, it got clearer and clearer and clearer, and it was very, very fun um, to participate in kind of getting to the final decision on that cover. I think it's pretty cool. Oh, that's neat. But, so that yeah. that's a hook, and I and I yep. like that, Amy. That That is a hook because it's like, huh, I wonder what milk has to do with a medical murder mystery. Very interesting. And so, so and, and just so you and your listeners know, there's not yes. a lot of blood and guts in here because I don't, you know, you don't really need a lot of blood and guts in these books. It's more fun, adventure, mystery, humor, but there's not a lot of, because some people like when they saw the scalpel, they're like, oh, I don't like bloody books. I don't want to, no, no, no. It's just that, that was the visual that we all agreed on. So, yes, that they're all fun, but there's not a lot of, I would say there's not a lot of violence, but there is a pinch of it because you do have to have a dead body, and they got to be dead somehow. Yes. Well, so I, I'm assuming that that you really got your inspiration to write from your career. I I, I presume that that was the the 
a hotbed that said, you know, um, I, I I'd like to write about this. Is that so? Did that is that what drew you to to write about the, the your career with um, organ transplantation? Well, initially didn't did not want to write about it because I was doing it all day. And then people would yeah. say, Oh, did you watch this Grey's Anatomy or ER? I'm like, you know, I kind of see that in person. So not, not right now. No. And then I went to this, we have this amazing independent bookstore book passage in Corte Madeira that is, Oh my God, it's heaven. I'm so grateful. I live down, the, you know, the freeway from it. Anyway, mm-hmm. I went to hear Michael Conley who's an amazing author, come, because they get everybody there. I actually got to meet Maya Angelou there in person. I wow. Just, like, dumb. Oh, yeah, but they bring all these authors. So I heard him talk, and in his one book long ago, he has a heart transplant patient in his book. So afterwards, I was kind of starstruck, and I just wanted to say hi. And by the way, I work in transplant, I told him, but I really didn't want to write it. And he just about that, and he just looked at me and goes, well, that's too bad. And that was it. Not in a mean way, but in an observatory way. So then I went to a workshop at Book Passage, and my best friend, Betsy graziani um was with me. And we were doing all the exercises our teacher, Catherine Flaxman, was giving us. And I wrote the word cut. And she just turned to me and goes, she says, that's your next book. And I looked at her, because this is how it happens, at least for me and many authors. I'm like, Okay, and so I began with lots of help and lots of coaching and lots of writing classes and lots of workshops, uh, specifically Book Passage has a, a murder mystery conference uh, every year when they can, obviously, and they're going to have one this year in August, um, and go there and just learn and listen and read. So uh, initially, no, and then when I decided, okay, I'm going to write a mystery, but I'm going to conclude my humor and I'm going to have these two fun nursing school friends because I, I still am close friends with all my girlfriends from nursing school, South Chicago That's Community so nice. Hospital. And then we graduated in 74, but we've known each other since 72 and we still see each other every year. Um, mm-hmm. And so I put in, you know, some nursing school friends and then nobody knows this one. So I'm going to guess they're not listening, but my two best friends from kindergarten, Debbie and Chris, or don't know it yet, but they're in the third book. I put their names in there. It's, you can use anybody's name you want. And they're, yeah, sure. they're in the book. I'm not telling anybody else anymore. But anyway, I then I just said, okay. And then it all started to come. And, and, and not sometimes easy, sometimes not so easy because it's not all easy. Mm-hmm. But that's how, that's how I shifted from I'm not writing about it to, okay, I'll write about it. That's, that's, that's really, that's interesting because you 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 know about the subject so mm-hmm. and then you use your humor to also do some engagement i i just i think it's really interesting does this passion still influence everything that you're doing today and the work that you're doing i think it does uh, my passion for transplant certainly does because I got to see people who were at death's door literally mm-hmm. when they got a transplant. My one fun example is of Sophie who ended up becoming a friend a long time ago. But when somebody has kidney failure and then they are on dialysis, sometimes their food and liquid restrictions because their kidneys aren't working. So she could have maybe a tall glass, maybe of whatever fluid, you know, during the day, one glass. 
your listeners even just look at their glass or their drink bottle. Mm, probably too much in the drink bottle. But anyway, she would stand under the shower and let the water go out of her mouth just so she could feel wow. it. I had mm. a patient die from eating a sweet potato pie because of the amount of potassium because if the kidneys can't clear those things, they build up in your body. And if you're not up for your dialysis, you know, that can cause problems. And then when these people got a kidney transplant, boy, bar the door because they could eat and drink and they were so happy plus they were on steroids. And it was just like watching someone just pull the shutter up and, you know, heart, lungs, liver transplant patients, they literally are at death's door and then when they get transplanted, I mean, and then they're back on deck and in just this amazing way. It gave me a lust for life. to the point that when someone says, oh, my birthday's coming up, but I don't want to celebrate. And I said, you know, there's a lot of people who want to celebrate being alive a day. They want to celebrate, you know, a birth date. They don't even know. You know, I used, I did a talk at our um, local temple, Rota Shalom, one year. I brought a straw. I brought a yellow marker and I brought a cup. So I talked about like for kidney patients, that's all they can drink. The yellow marker was to show that some people's skin does turn, you know, their sclera and their eye turns yellow. And the straw was people who have pulmonary, uh, need lung transplants. If you just put sip through a straw, straw, that's all the air sometimes they can get into their lungs because mm-hmm. their lungs are damaged. So that has fueled my passion for life and for doing things because there's, you know, like 116,000 people waiting for transplants, and I think 22 people die a day. So that we're here, that we're having this call, that we're having this radio talk show is a gift. And all those little things that, you know, we take for granted that some people just, you know, don't have, it's a gift. So, yeah, I'm still passionate, as you can tell. And and I'm presuming that these transplants weren't only adults. Did you also have children that were were getting a heart transplant? Oh, yeah. There were pediatric transplant programs for all the organs. I mean, um, you know, kidneys, livers, hearts, uh, lungs. Uh, But, yeah, in the kids, you know, it's – in my second book, Match, I talk about a little – because Wyatt, who's uh, Jackie and uh, Laura's son, needs kidney transplants. And he's like eight years old. And think about an eight-year-old when you're going to tell him, you can't eat dark chocolate. You can't eat, you can't drink a lot of food. You can't do that. Think of a little kid who's under those restrictions and then once is going to school with their friends. And, you know, you know, you see kids, you know, they all love to hang out and eat garbage right. food and things that have salt or whatever in them. So that's in the second book. But, yeah, adult and pediatric um, mm-hmm. transplants as well were, were under my purview. I'm I'm going to presume this to be true, but I I'm wondering the details in your book, um, they're really um, accurate from the transplant medical world, correct? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's yep. what I, I figured that, that I had would be that, the case. I worked with yeah I I worked very closely at, at UC with two well the surgeons the docs everybody the nurses everybody it's like it's a team sport it's a collaboration. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Everybody's around the table, and I sent my manuscript, first one to Nancy, Dr. Nancy Asher, who was chair of the Department of Surgery at the time, and she started the liver transplant program at UCSF with John Roberts and a team that they recruited from uh, Minnesota where they got their fellowship. 
And I was a little nervous because, you know, Mm -hmm. they don't suffer fools, nor should they, sending them my fictional version. And they both gave me good good reviews, which is good um, in the world. But, uh, yeah, the third book I stretch a little with, I mean, the transplant, some of the transplant stuff, the research stuff is accurate. But because I'm a fictional writer, I get to make some things up. Why not? Sure. So, right. But they're all, most most of the science, not every piece of it is grounded in, in fact. Okay. So how do you, and it is successful because you have been really acclaimed, how do you successfully marry such serious topics with humor in your writing? How do you do that? Well, thanks. <laughs> There's no way not to do it because if you want to read about transplant, you know, black and white, dry, go to the medical library or, you know, Google things and you can learn the, you know, the the, the facts of everything in it. But my two best friends in the book, Sarah and uh, Jackie, they're, mm-hmm. you know, they, they work hard and they play hard. And uh, they're a little, you know, once you start writing these characters, they kind of take on their own persona sure. in fiction. So uh, I'd say Jackie's a little more wild than Sarah is, but when they both get together, they're they're in trouble. They just get in trouble, and fun trouble. Well, sometimes mm-hmm. it's a little more than serious trouble. But um, I just let the story unfold, and because I value humor, and I, I like to be entertained myself, and I like a good guffaw every once in a while like the rest sure. of us, I think that the character development came from both my improv training plus you know, my family, we, you know, it was a, humor was a fine tool in our toolbox. We used to tease each other. We used to, you know, we're kids, make fun of each other. So I think I came by that naturally. And the other thing that was helpful doing, well, coming from my six, five siblings in improv is that I, I wasn't afraid of any of these big wig transplant surgeons and doctors, MDs, PhDs. I, I met them as a human and I even right. made fun of them, you know, to interface. We laughed a lot when we could, sure. and there wasn't a lot of moments for that. But I just, um, I think for me, and I would say many of my colleagues, we really needed some levity. And so it's just been ingrained in me for a long time. And that way the, the reader can enjoy the ride and mm-hmm. have fun and laugh. And many people like Sarah and Jackie. They say they want to hang out with them, which is pretty funny. And um, I like that, that I created two characters that uh, – kind of is a culmination of friends, nursing school friends. Because you can make, I can make a composite of any character. I'm the writer. I get to do that. Yes. So that's how I, that's, I don't intentionally try to make them funny, but when they're in situations um, and I just keep writing, they show up on the page and sometimes in a very funny, silly way. And then I like to watch comedy. And I love, you know, like I said, Melissa McCarthy I my dream some days to meet her because I just love her and I think she's funny and I respect her and she's from Illinois. How could she be bad? So yeah, um, there you go. That's so funny. You know, so I just yeah yeah I just think it's it's just part of who I am. Um, and and that's Has how I. Has it been I, an easy transition to go from being this you know nurse that was in this field for for such a long time to being an award winning medical mystery author has that been an easy transition for you you know i i don't think so i would say no i because 
My last position was I was director of clinical operations at UCSF, and that is everything has to run 100% smoothly. You, The front end of the story, everyone coming in, patients getting cared for, families, making sure everything happens in just the right way. I was in charge of the back end of that, the staff, you know, the all of the moving parts that I kind of met, referred to earlier. So I decided to retire when I was 60 because it was a park your life at the door job. It's very hard work. You, It's mm-hmm. not like you can turn it off. But I wanted to retire, and I was able to, to retire with a pension, which I'm grateful for. And mm-hmm. I had started writing the first book. I started outlining the first book when I was still working. And when I decided to do that, I had a, my coach, uh, Brooke Warner, um, I started paying attention to things that work differently. Like if we were doing rounds on the floor, because I like to go on rounds, um, I would think to myself, how would I explain this to somebody who doesn't know what it is? You know, or if I go to selection at the meetings where people get and we decide as a team who gets on the list, who gets off the list, uh, takes off the list, I think to myself, besides being present and participating when appropriate, how would I explain this? somebody who doesn't ever get in that room, who would never be in that room. So it was like I added on another layer of observation, and I would even take a little video of the floor, like how would I describe this transplant floor to you, Marcia, if you've never been on a kidney transplant floor? Sure. Like what's on it? So I embedded some of those things uh, in cut and in match um, that would, and a little bit in uh, hold, so kind of made me pay attention. And then what I realized, too, is even though I retired from working full-time, I was still connected at a national level with the United Network for Organ Sharing. I was on their, I was chairing their National uh, Transplant Administrators Committee. And I, so I got to go to those meetings, which was a gift because, you know, in for a penny, in for a pound when it's your favorite topic. And then the fun part of that is that, um, I, I, you know, I turned off that committee, and so I hadn't any clinical connection at all to that world, but I was writing about it, so I would reach out to colleagues to make sure my details were depicted accurately. And then this, mm-hmm. just this last year, I was invited to be the official MC at the Transplant Management Forum in Arizona. They flew me there and put me up, and I welcomed everybody yeah, oh, because nice. I've gotten, you know, we talked a little bit about the breath and stretch stuff. And then I, you know, I did a few um, moderating things and interviewed some speakers. And it was so fun to just be back into that world because I didn't have to go back to work and manage 120 people. I got to enjoy myself and then go see my family in Tucson. So um, that was really a lot of fun. And I had no idea that one of the keynote speakers talked about uterine transplants. Like there are, there have been like oh. 30 uterus transplants into women who were told they could never have kids. And in fact, they, this doctor, I think it was from Baylor, uh, talked about transplanting a uterus into a woman. Uterus had been, you know, donated. Uh, he'd had up to three deliveries uh, on one patient um, healthy C-section deliveries, and then they remove the uterus so they don't have to take the anti-rejection drugs. And I was just like dumbfounded because, you know, I hadn't had my finger on the pulse there for a long time. And it was kind of another version of gift of life. So I'm now being invited back to Denver next year because um, people enjoyed it and they also felt like they got a little levity 
because I do, you know, I played with some of the speakers and in a light mm-hmm. way, um, because this is, you know, at the end of the day, this is a very serious world and it's serious a lot. And people do need a little park bench to have maybe just a breath. So that's how I segued from, you know, eating, drinking and sleeping transplant to becoming a writer in these mysteries. And now because I also believe in wellness, as I have for a long time, I'm now marrying some of those additional skills of some chair yoga, breath, stretch, levity. Um, and and so that's, it seems that, that this is evolving because I'm grateful to be living my passion and, and marrying those pieces of who I am. I, I love that. And I I want to spend some time talking about um, the yoga side of your life because I know that that's a big part of your life. In fact, you have some terrific videos out there that I will make sure that people will have the link to those videos as well, um, Amy, to the link to the specific bookstore that you mentioned at the top of um, our talk together that people can go and you know and encourage people to go to their local bookstores but i have i have certainly um i will certainly indicate that they can buy their books that way but let's let's talk about yoga and how that works towards avoiding burnout how when people have intense lifestyles or circumstances let's talk about you uh, you do a lot with yoga. I mean, I frankly, I had never even heard of laughter yoga. So let's spend some time um, bringing us up to date with what we might not know about yoga today. All right. I would be happy to. I, I studied Iyengar yoga, which is a form of yoga for a long time. When I was working, I had a good friend who... Uh, Marianne Hoover said, why don't you come to a yoga class? And, okay, I've always been curious. Well, I got hooked. It was hard, um, and but it was good. And then over the years as I worked and aged, uh, let's just say my knees weren't doing so good, and I didn't go as often uh, because it was really hard for me to get up and off the floor without, you know, people's mouths dropping open because it wasn't a pretty sight, but I didn't really care. <laughs> and um, so I, and when I retired in 2014, my gift to myself was I sent myself to the Chopra Center in Carlsbad, California for a 10-day perfect health program, which I honestly didn't know a lot about, but I thought, oh, this sounds like a good, Amy, you know, a tune-up. I, I need it. Well, I found there that they had this chair yoga. And my knees, you know, I got two new knees now, so, you know, I can get up and off a little bit more, you know, daintily, if you will, although you wouldn't use that name with me. But anyway, I decided, oh, my God, you can do chair yoga. You can do all the poses. You can learn it. I applied. got in. I got out of that. I became a certified Chopra, uh, Seven Spiritual Laws of Yoga. Um, and what I loved about this, it's Hatha yoga, it's gentle yoga, is that it, you just do what feels good. You don't have to be, like I referred to some people as like these skinny pretzel people, that it's a little intimidating when you look at the front of some of those yoga magazines. And I knew that was just not going to happen for me. And then I decided to throw my hat in the ring to be a teacher. I didn't think I would be accepted because I'm a full-figured gal. I'm a tall girl, but I'm a full-figured gal. And I never saw that version of a yoga teacher before. And, of course, I got in. And then I learned a beautiful instructors, Claire Dieb and the Chopra Center folks were just like, oh, my gosh, 
So I fell in love with chair yoga, got certified, and then was offering that here locally. Uh, And it was interesting how many people really needed it. Not so much that you're going to do these crazy poses because you don't. I mean, we do all kinds. You can do sun salutations in the chair and all that. But it's also moving into your body, mind, and spirit, connecting with yourself in a quiet way, and then doing a little stretch and breath. So the videos you were talking about, that's what I do. Some people think, I don't have any time. I have to do everything. I can't do anything. That would be me. I would have never, mm-hmm. when I was working full-time, thinking, oh, I can't do it, I can't do it. But now I realize that if I had a minute or two to myself, whether before I go to work, when I park in the work garage, or when I get home before I get out, that it just recenters you. It's just a little mm-hmm. baby sound bite for people that, that doesn't require anything. You can do breathing. You can wear whatever clothes you have, you can, whatever you want. So I realized that was a gift and um so i taught chair yoga and, and another thing is it's funny you know just like i met you and we talk i could have talked to you for hours um right i was going to the hospital for my pre-op for my knee replacement and i'm talking to the nurse there and telling her what i did blah 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 and she's like oh you should meet this other girl this lady she teaches laughter yoga over at the bernard osher center for ucsf and integrative medicine and i thought Boy, that's a combo. I love Second City. I like that. I like yoga. And then I, and she, Teresa is her name, and she's amazing. And this is what they would bring to train to people who were getting chemo or having any kind of terminal illness. So she sent me a note, and two years later, she goes, would you be interested in a training next weekend? And I said, thought to myself, why not? Like, why not? And I went, and my mouth was so sore after two and a half days of laughter. And we then got to go to the hospital. The best part is we got to go to the hospital, of course, with permission from staff and the patients. And we went into this one room. I'll never forget this. This woman had terminal cancer. Her girls and her husband were in the room. And we just did a few exercises with them. And if I could have taken a picture of her face before and after and her family, they were just lighter. They got to laugh. Mm -hmm. And... And we all know it, it's glib, but it's true. Laughter is the best medicine because you increase the endorphins and you just let it go and it's a stress reliever and there's science behind it. If we just did a, my teacher uh, and I, Teresa, did a a laughter yoga for UCSF alumni and some of these people take themselves very seriously, very well educated, lots of letters after their name and we got them to laugh and we got them to move. It was a Zoom one and I got to tell you, it was a gift because they really enjoyed it. I can I can imagine that. And as someone that introduced me to yoga, I don't know, it's been probably three or three and a half, four years ago. I can't even recall now. Um, I didn't really know what yoga was. Um, I didn't really know what it was. And I I have found from from myself. And it's funny, I don't know why they do that. I put my hand right over my heart when I talk about Mm. this. But we all have our stressors. Everybody's stressors are not the same. But you don't get Mm -hmm. through this, particularly during this COVID time where it's it's magnified that tremendously. My my weekly yoga class is on Zoom. You know, we just set Mm. up our iPads or our laptops or whatever so that the instructor can see us and we just put I just put her on speaker view and she she um you know she 
um, mutes the, the participants. And for me, and, and, and I, I think you would probably agree, yoga has many elements to it. Certainly poses, stretching, all of those things have, have an importance because some of us really do need to, you know, oil up our limbs. But there's that other side that, like you did at the very front, uh, beginning of our talk together, which is to understand how to take a deep breath. Now, singers get that. They understand mm. the diaphragm. They understand if you're going to sing and you have to hold your breath as you're singing, that it just happens. It's fundamental to singing. But it's not fundamental if you're not a singer. Now, maybe it is if you're a runner, if you're an athlete. But if you're just, you know, a person like myself that really didn't understand breath work and the value of breath work and the value of four square breathing, whether you are sitting in a chair or you're lying on your mat, and what I have found so rewarding in my class is it's not just the pose. It's the words. Mm -hmm. And one of the words that resonates so much with me, Amy, really, I mean, I can hardly say it without tearing up, is when she says, without judgment. Mm -hmm. Because Mm -hmm. that is significant for me. And if you can't get into that pose, you don't know how to do downward-facing dog and you're on your mat. Well, you're not going to do that on a chair, but I think you do cat-cow on a chair. And there's a lot of other things. Uncross your legs. Your, the blood flow is not working well if your legs are crossed. My legs are crossed right now. Hello. Uncross your legs, Marsha. It's not good for your blood pressure. So I just find that yoga is a really balancing, what I said earlier, it's a balancing. When, when we talk about you being a wellness advocate and what you bring to families and what you've done all these years, and now you do it through your writing, through your humor, you've got another book on the way. I mean, you are productive. We don't say we're busy. We, don't, we try not to say that. Somehow that has sort of a, 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 a connotation that says you have no control. But by being productive and living in the moment and being grateful and being mindful, all those words that people banter around, in reality, they're meaningful. And they do bring those shoulders down where they belong. They don't belong up against your earlobes. And for to be in a career that you've been in all this time, I'm just so grateful that you have shared your stories. And and we're going to just have to hold out now to wait for the third book coming out because I I think it's very clever on your part that your your last two books are one word titles, and it. It makes me curious, and which is what you want, correct? Yes, yes, happy. Yes, and I think you're yeah. right. Practicing non-judgment is, you know, on the seven spiritual laws of yoga, is one of the things. It's, it's it sounds easy, but when you try to like go through your day, just try one day, one hour, not to judge anything, not anything, just for fun. Right. And you know, and it comes up, and like you're right. 
it's my pose, my pose, my downward dog is going to be different than yours. And they're both right. perfect for us because of where we are. And if we breathe into that, we're all just fine the way we are. And comparing is a form of violence. And I, you know, not that I didn't compare myself in past yoga classes. Don't get me wrong. But I think <laughs> we are who we are. We are who we are. And we can breathe. We can stretch. We can do what we can do. And that's the gift, I think. I, I agree with you. And the more that we can get out of our own bubble... And clearly, you know, this has been an isolating time for many of us. Um, mm-hmm. And we can appreciate what we have, verbalize it, maybe write it down. Maybe you do a little gratitude note for yourself every day and throw it into a jar. And at the end of the year, you open those up and you go, wow, I wrote this back in January. Look what I was grateful for then. I think that mm. we we all can learn from one another and I think that's why doing this podcast for me has been so rewarding because it's allowed me to have people like yourself join me. This And, and I, I, I'm looking over at the guests that I've had um, this month and everyone brings their own talent and their own passion to the table. And it's, it's a pleasure. And, and I've thoroughly enjoyed getting to know you i don't know if you ever have your um opportunity to get down to los angeles because you're up above me up north but certainly i live very close to the airport you are somebody i would love to meet in person and i just want to thank you so much amy for sharing what's so important to you with our listening audience today it's it's been a pleasure well, thank you. It's been really fun and a pleasure for me. And when, I, when and if I get down there, I may just give you a holler. Yes, I'll meet you. So everyone, <laughs> take take something away, away from this. Take whatever makes sense to you. What, what may, might make sense to you might make a different sense to someone else. And if you are a reader, check out these books and see what what Amy has been talking about, how she marries this um, transplant and humor all together with these two women that are, I assume they're, they're going to go into hold as well, right? They're going to stay with you. Oh, yeah, they're not going anywhere. <laughs> well, there. that's great. They are definitely that's there. Gr- <laughs> that's great to know. We'll have to do this again, um, you know, maybe the beginning of next year after your book's been out and you're telling us about your, um, you know, your movie because that would be great to talk about as well. So to everyone listening, be well, be safe, take care of yourself, and join me again next week as we clean out May because we will be celebrating Memorial Day together next week. And my brother is going to be my guest. I just have to say that. That's going to be very interesting. How fun. I know. I'm going to have my brother as my guest on my show next week. It's going to be very interesting. You'll have to tune in. All right, everybody. Have a great week. I'm saying goodbye for now. Bye-bye.